speakers this morning, Nicole Mormillian, also contributed. So that's a very important context for this. But we do also need to thank the fact that we have, I can't thank the person individually, because we have an anonymous donor at Bristol who gives us money to support this enterprise. And he has also contributed to today, which has facilitated, along with Kellogg College's contribution, the fact that we could make this you know, not a pay conference. It's just you know, we can sort all of this out. So we do need to express our gratitude for that. We should just also point out that uh, the technician, Andy, who is so wonderfully helping in setting this up this morning, also brought in today's Guardian, um, which on the front page, it has, you know, not Russia's arms. No, we won't worry about that. We won't pass on that. Excuse me one moment. There we go. Which is spring fever, which of course hasn't arrived in Oxford yet. But Stravinsky's right has shaped 100 years of music, and Igor himself is of course on the front page. So we are nothing if not topical. Now you all have seen the sort of uh, entacte and, and all of the different performances that we're including today. You also will have noticed that, as my students in the room will avow, there is no pause for breath until lunchtime now. <laughs> <laughs> Except in that we will have sort of little interviews while each speaker uh, steps up to their presentation. So if you wish to briefly escape and grab some more caffeine or, or take use of the facilities which are just to your right beyond the reception, by all means do. In my stage manager role, also let me remind you that should we manage to set fire to the building with our eyes, <laughs> please do congregate in the front foyer and we'll watch the Rite of Spring in full flame. <laughs> and then uh, my tenure at uh, uh, the university may well come to an abrupt end. Uh, my other uh, small thank you, indeed a, a deep thank you, is to my colleagues at the Design History Society, for they are the ones who have allowed us this extraordinary opportunity to greet the great Professor Lynn Farofola to speak to us as our keynote today. Uh, the range and depth and variety of proposals that we have sent in to us are indeed a marker of the extraordinary standard, acuity, depth of her scholarship that each of us have relied upon in forging our own area of inquiry. Before I launch into my sort of pain to her, <laughs> let me also just alert you to the sort of underlying principle of how we structured the programme. The first uh, session after Lynn's uh, uh, sort of establishment of the repertoire at the beginning is to look at the moments of precursors and origins. So examining this climate in which the ballet Russe forges the, the moment of the rite of spring, the second session uh, after lunch is very much looking at the international dissemination of the phenomena of the Rite of Spring of the Belarus, but also responses to that. And this again is international in perspective, reverberating out from the world of Paris to Britain and indeed to Spain, a wonderful enrichment that we have there. The later afternoon sessions bring us forward to the extraordinary rebirth of the Rite of Spring in the second half of the 20th century. Our last session, I'm delighted to report, includes a centenary performance from last week in Glasgow. <laughs> so we are really utterly achieving the full century scope. So that's the overall shape. We are podcasting all of these, so hopefully your, your students and colleagues can enjoy this um, at a later date. And one of our other guest visitors today is our colleague Stephen Halliwell from Riverdale Press, who we are very grateful and keen <laughs> to have in our midst as we embark on this wonderful voyage. But before I hand over to Lynn, you may wish to, to, to start to settle yourself at night. Do come up and be, I, I should have four bouquets of roses, but at this stage, we will have... Actually, shall I say a quick word about my time? Well, I'll do that later. So be a there, and I shall not have you have to meet my eye while I, I speak to you in this way. Uh, all of us, I think, on our shelves, or at least the Armani household, has an utterly broken-spined copy of the Ballet and its world. Uh, this extraordinary launch into an interdisciplinary approach to the world that Yaffiev, his dancers, his designers, his composers, his patronesses, 
all brought together across a global community of performers and audiences. That book then has had wonderful reverberations, crescendos, reconsiderations, <laughs> as she then launches into a discussion of David Duvalier's aftermath a decade later. She's examined the whole ways in which the wonderful New York City Ballet and a key figure of Jerome Robbins has very much been at the heart of pushing forward the boundaries of ballet. Those of us who regretfully are not uh, Manhattanites nonetheless regularly go on pilgrimage to the New York City, the New York Public Library, <laughs> where she's had this cavalcade of exhibitions and ensuing conferences and publications to which the whole phenomena of the performance of dance and all of these sister arts that make the production are very much celebrated. Professor at Marlon College at Columbia University, she has moved dance history and its interdisciplinary incarnation into the sort of center stage of this new world of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies that is at the heart of dance history, design history, musicology. I'm delighted to report that one of the grimmer moments of recent months has, of course, been looking at strategic plans, which we are always doing in university life. But the two challenges and delights that have been encouraged for us to pursue at the University of Oxford is a global community and an interdisciplinary approach. What better guide, what better guru <laughs> could we have? <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, hopefully not too Thanks. That is very fulsome indeed. <laughs> and very unexpected. <laughs> um, but thank even quite apart from that, thank you for putting this together. Um, thank you to all your colleagues, um, Mike and your colleagues for organizing this and for actually doing it on the day of the Rite of, of, of Spring and for arranging for the Guardian to have a front page article. I, I know that was entirely up to your doing. And also I'd like to thank you for bringing me back to Oxford because I spent a year here when my daughter was six years old, we were living in Headington, not at this side, uh, on this side of Oxford, and she went to St. Andrew's first school there. <laughs> there it was. Um, uh, so there are many pleasures about being here again, and I can assure everyone who may be coming from somewhere else that the sun does sometimes come <laughs> out here. So um, I realized as I was looking over the final list of people that many, and what people are going to be talking about, that in fact many of the things, not Scotland, but in fact many of the things that I mentioned, many of the choreographers or ideas that I mentioned en passant will then be developed in the course of this, and I think that's a wonderful kind of synergy that is um, uh, happening, and then in the best kinds of conferences does happen. So, to start, since the premiere of the Rite of Spring in 1913, scores of choreographic works to the celebrated Stravinsky score have seen the Rite of Day. In 1987, when Joan Acacella, who now writes uh, a criticism for The New Yorker, when she and I compiled a list of as many productions as we could document for the Dance um, Critics Association Symposium, The Rite of Spring at 75, the number was 44. Now, of course, that was in the dark ages before Google and the internet. By the time we republished the list in 1992 in Ballet Review, the number had climbed to 92. Uh, no, sorry, it had climbed to 75, including more than 20 earlier versions that we had missed. Um, since then, the numbers have grown exponentially. In 1999, the Italian critic Ada D'Adamo recounted 93 versions. 
Three years later, Stravinsky, the Global Dancer, the database developed by Stephanie Jordan and her colleague Lorraine Nicholas at Roehampton University in 2002, recorded 181 settings of the score, with roughly half since 1990, and with several choreographers staging multiple versions. Seemingly, the idea of the now legendary work coupled with its memorable score posed an irresistible challenge. And of course, since 2002, they have been coming very rapidly. And during this year, they've been coming very rapidly, as we've seen. So even as the productions keep coming, like Vaslov's original, uh, Nijinsky's original, they keep disappearing, with perhaps two dozen or so in active repertory. Well, at the moment, we have a few more than that. To be sure, a few dance works outlive the first decade of their creation. They may leave traces, documentary and otherwise, uh, but as living works, they enter the limbo of non-performance, where they languish long after any hope of retrievability has gone. Yet the Rite of Spring, despite the absence of a definitive theatrical text, continues to occupy cultural space. In the introduction to her book, The Archive and the Repertoire, performance scholar Diana Taylor muses, is performance that which disappears or that which persists, transmitted through a non-archival system of transfer that I call the repertoire, end quote. In other words, is the cultural relevance of the Rite of Spring linked to what Taylor calls, albeit in a very different context, the paradoxical omnipresence of the disappeared? Or to put it a little differently, does the cycle of loss and renewal built into the very identity of the ballet inspire its continuous reinvention? Um, is the very absence of a fixed, stable, or permanent choreographic text what accounts for the ballet's staying power? If so, what ideologies and impulses do these rites seem to espouse? And what conventions do they reject? And why have they retained their imaginative force? This paper argues that the Rite of Spring, precisely because it's a lost ballet, comprises a body of ideas rather than a detailed choreographic script, and that this conceptual freedom allows both for the ballet's continual reinvention and for the persistence of ideas associated with the original. One group of ideas centers on the ballet's transgressiveness, its primitivism, violence, um, modernity, and repudiation of traditional ballet aesthetics, all underscored by the so-called riot that took place at the premiere. From this perspective, the right is a model of formal radicalism, a dance that says no uh, to the status quo and hints at freedoms beyond the stage. At the same time, the right belongs to ballet's canon. It was produced by Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, heir to, an heir to the 19th century Franco-Russian tradition and the progenitor of its 20th century descendants. It was produced on a grand scale and its central conceit, The Death of the Maiden, has a long ballet history. Um, finally, it was choreographed by Václav Nijinsky, the company's celebrity danseur, who was Diaghilev's lover and whose career was cut short by mental illness, a tragedy that, which uh, memorialized him as a mad genius. From the first, the Rite of Spring proclaimed its centrality to ballet history, even as it rejected the conventions of the past and exuded a whiff of scandal. Since 1913, choreographers have approached the right from numerous vantage points. Some have em emphasized its violence, others its sexuality, primitivism, and terror. Many have thrown out the original scenario, and some even the full score, retaining only the pregnant title. Nearly all have discarded the original ethnographic trimmings. Although most productions stress the ensemble, there have even been a few heroic solo versions. Initially, ballet choreographers, albeit those identified as modernists, created the versions that followed Nijinsky's right. Subsequently, most of the work's choreographers have been associated with modern or some uh, modern dance, contemporary dance, uh, one of those, something within that non-balletic realm. But whatever the choreographer's aesthetic position, the right continues to be a work that insists upon its modernity, its engagement with the contemporary world. 
For ultimately, what each new version seeks to resurrect is the ballet's original transgressive moment, its modernist persona, both as an act of resistance and as a means of claiming membership in a performance tradition that defies the ephemeral nature of dance through continuous reinvention. Now, in Stravinsky and the Russian Traditions, Richard Taruskin analyzes the music of the Rite of Spring in terms of the distinction drawn by the poet Alexander Bloch between kultura, or culture, and stihia, um, and the elemental force that sprang from the, from the people. Um, kultura was rootless, artificial, and inauthentic, an expression of the elite, whereas Dihia encompassed the life and culture of the contemporary Russian peasant. Uh, writing in the first decade of the 20th century, Bloch urged artists to renounce culture and emulate those who still practice the ancient rituals and perform the ancient dances. He dreamed of wholeness, a reconciliation with the earth, union with nature. For Stravinsky as a composer, cultura signified any number of things. Um, 19th century art music, musical folklorism, the German symphonic, uh, sorry, symphonic tradition, with its ideas of musical structure, harmonic progression, and thematic development. Stichia, by contrast, embraced the uncouth, elemental, and unmediated. It was closely associated with Scythianism, a term applied to artworks sought to embody, and here I quote Richard Taruskin again, quote, the elemental and maximalistic rendering of primitive antiquity in a shockingly coarse and brutal manner, end quote. In Stravinsky's score, it was associated with peasant ceremonial songs, many of great antiquity, the radical transformation that rendered them almost invisible, a formal simplification so extreme it appeared to deny all refinement of thought and feeling, and the complexity and even violence of the composer's rhythmic innovations. Neither Nijinsky nor his sister, Bronislava Nijinska, upon whom the role of the chosen maiden was originally created, and who later wrote about the ballet in her memoirs, ever referred to the Rite of Spring in terms of cultura and stihia. Yet the tension between the two haunts virtually every aspect of the ballet's staging from its movement vocabulary and rhythmic dynamics to its spatial configurations, performance style, narrative approach, and even costumes. It's played out in the choreography or architecture of the work and in the bodies of the dancers who brought it to life, one of many universes uh, they inhabited in the course of a single season. Like classical music, ballet was an imported art in Russia, um, and as such, a prime example of stihia. Uh, even if many of the earliest dancers were serfs. This, the title of this is Ballet Lesson of a Serf Ballerina. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it arrived in the early 18th century following Peter the Great's reforms, in quotes, of course, and from the start it was identified with the West. There's another serf ballerina. Ballet masters, who typically combine the functions of choreographer, teacher, and dancer, um, traveled from Italy and France, uh, bringing stars and repertoire along with composers and machinists, as they were called, to create both sound environments and spe spectacular effects. By the 19th century, this, the schools attached to the Moscow and St. Petersburg companies were among the finest in Europe, although the circulation of talent and repertoire, with very, very few exceptions, continued to flow from west to east and few ballets featured Russian content, however, anodyne. And to illustrate, here is Tamara Karsavina, uh, uh, the ballerina who also danced for Diaghilev in the Russian folkloric ballet, The Little Humpbacked Horse. Obviously, in the classical pas de there wasn't too much that was folkloric. So Russianness um, in these companies lay in the bodies of the dancers and in the political economy of a system of state support that all but insulated the imperial theaters from both the economic marketplace and the intrusion of contemporary ideas. Although the dancers may have been Russian, their technique belonged to the West. Ballet had its origins in the courts of Renaissance Italy and acquired both an identity and a nomenclature in the France of Louis XIV. 
uh, ballet technique impersonated the pose and stance of aristocracy, even when the performers ceased to be so-called no, um, noble um, amateurs and came instead from the clans of dancing and music masters and from the fairgrounds. Turnout, the, or the outward rotation of the hips, symmetry, and a codified series of foot and arm positions um, were the building blocks of the new technique, which by the 18th century had developed a, a vocabulary of virtuosic jumps and footwork, petit allegro. Uh, point work, uh, which emerged in the 1820s with figures like Marie Taglioni, um, to become a badge of ballerina identity, opened whole other areas of virtuosity, while identifying ballet aesthetics with femininity. Um, in no other European theatrical practice were women so dominant on stage as in ballet, or was the social status of the practice itself so compromised because of the visibility of women. Men were notable for their absence, except in certain highly prescribed masculine roles. Such roles were seldom classical ones, and they were rarely expressive. With 24 men, the Rite of Spring was not the first injection of testosterone on the 20th century French ballet stage. Uh, the Palazzian dances from Prince Igor, that's um, Adolf Bohm as the Palazzian chief, performed on the very first ballerist program in 1909, had already intoxicated audiences with the, quote, fever and madness of its choreography and the, quote, savage exaltation of its warriors. These are the kinds of, the kind of language that you find in so much of that, the criticism from that first season. Nijinsky, too, in ballets like Scheherazade, and the Spectre de la Rose thrill, uh, thrilled audiences, albeit as a new kind of male hero, what you might call the virtuoso androgyne. Michel Fokin, uh, or Michel Fokin as he styled himself in the West, whose works dominated the Valerie's repertory up to the First World War, had already rejected many conventions of 19th century Russian ballet, its multi-act structure, codified pas de deux, jumble of dance styles, and mime. He took his women out of uh, tutus, tights, and point shoes, and dressed them in sandals, soft slippers, and tunics, so that they subsequently became simultaneously antique exotic, and icons of contemporary fashion. The body under the tunic, uncorseted for the first time in a hundred years, extended itself in space, arching and curving with a new expressive freedom. And interestingly, Fokin created the same liberating magic for men. The right, on the other hand, rejected both the West and the feminine as they were embodied in ballet. The Art Nouveau curve of Fokin's expressive body vanished in a geometry of line and angle, even as Nijinsky abandoned the technique of the danse d'école, the academic dance in which he had been trained. Turnout, as we've said, was the foundation of that technique. It made possible the 19th century acrobatic feats at which he, he excelled. As a dancer, however, Yes, as a dancer, however, um, sorry, um, as a choreographer, however, he rejected turnout. As a dancer, he used it. Uh, as a choreographer, he rejected it. In Afternoon of a Fawn uh, from 1912, his first um, ballet, he conceived all the movement in parallel. In The Rite of Spring, he explored the wide-scale use of the turned-in pigeon-toed position. He made the stance of his pre-Slavonic tribe, just as turnout was that of the art identified with Russia's westernized elite. And this is one of the very early, early photographs. It comes, I actually copied it from Le Théâtre, July 1913. And here you can see four of, you see four of the men. Nijinsky eliminated ballet's graceful, codified arm gestures in the French name step vocabulary developed over two centuries and found his movement in a highly stylized combination of folk and vernacular gestures, hardened and masculinized. His dancers stamped and shook, trembled and fell, rushed and fought, circled and killed. 
By breaking up movement and bringing it back to the simple gesture, wrote Jacques Rivière in La Nouvelle Revue Française, Nijinsky caused expression to return to the dance, end quote. The virtuosity lay in the complex rhythms, uh, the unfamiliar movement, the precision, stamina, an impersonal performance style the choreography called for, and the unconventional pathways that electrified the stage space, far from the neat symmetries of 19th century ballet, or even the orgiastic dynamism of uh, Fokin's uh, Bacchanals. No wonder a choreographer like Santa Driver could boldly assert in the introduction to a volume about William Forsyth that, quote, the real founder of modern dance was Václav Nijinsky. The idea of Nijinsky's right as exemplifying what later generations would call modern or contemporary dance, among other terms, has become a critical part of the ballet's memory in Diana Taylor's um, sense. The right was a ballet that dispensed with ballet technique, even if the dancers carried that technique in their bodies as a result of their daily practice and the repertoire they performed on a reg regular basis. His choreography for the right obscured the danse des cols, and it's useful to consider what was performed the for, the, for the premiere of the Rite of Spring 100 years ago, the program opened with Les Sylphides or Chopiniana, a ballet to Chopin. It was then followed by the Rite of Spring, which was then followed by Nijinsky after screaming counts to all the dancers. <laughs> he then got into his uh, rose-petaled costume and danced Le Spectre de la Rose, and the whole thing closed with, um, uh, with the Palazzian dances, for which we've already seen the image of um, Adolf Bohm. So um, the dance de d'école was also obscured to a degree by the character of the Diaghilev company itself. Uh, most of, uh, most of, of Nijinsky's dancers were young and few were seasoned performers. Only a minority were certifiably Russian. And of these, only a handful had danced at the Imperial theaters. They thus embodied a form of ballet practice that diverged sharply from what prevailed on the imperial stage. Of all the dancers who took part in the Rite of Spring, none, including Maria Piltz, who performed the role of the chosen maiden because Nijinska was pregnant, was a technical virtuoso in the traditional sense. Caught up in the experimental ferment that preceded and followed the Russian Revolution, the right choreographers who immediately followed Nijinsky widened the breach with imperial practice. Their work, which horrified conservative critics like Akim Volinsky and Andrei Levinson, um, was honed in artist cabarets, studios, or dramatic theaters, or in Leonid Massin's case, in Diaghilev's traveling laboratory, as I call it, during World War I. They cast their chosen maidens from outside the ballerina tribe and used both ballet and modern dancers in the ensemble. In her analysis of German rites from the early 1930s to the 1990s, the dance scholar Susan Manning argues that choreographers staged the work, quote, during periods of heightened tension between so-called classical and modern styles on the German dance stage, end quote. Since Millicent Hodson's recreation of Dijinsky's original, another one of those words I was putting quotes, original, in 1987, with its subsequent revivals for major ballet companies, television broadcasts, and commercial release on DVD, the number of new productions by ballet choreographers has declined sharply, while those by self-described contemporary or modern choreographers have shot up. Even more than earlier in the century, choreographing the right implied some kind of stance of corporeal and cultural nonconformity. Massine's chosen maidens of the 1920s and early 1930s, Lydia Sokolova, Bronislava Nijinska, and Martha Graham, emphasized how unclassical he considered the role even when casting classical dancers. To be sure, both Nijinska and Sokolova and Nijinska were ballet trained, uh, but they were better known for performing dramatic, grotesque, and character roles than classical ones that embodied the eternal feminine. They were not, so to speak, conventional ballerinas. 
Sokolova, through her amanuensis, Richard Bockel, has written at length about her encounter with the role of the chosen maiden, while many have commented about Graham's clashes with the choreographer during rehearsals for the American company. Um, sorry, for the American premiere, and I suspect we're going to be hearing a little bit more about that. But Nijinska, and this is her what she looked like in 1922, um, has generally been overlooked. Uh, I think in the next couple of years I'll be giving many talks in which I'm going to be saying she has been generally overlooked. Uh, I'm saying, what is someone who's writing a book about Nijinska doing this whole year talking about Nijinsky? And that is a question one might well pursue. But in any event, this in part was because she took over the role two years after the premiere in 1922 when Sokolova had temporarily left the Ballet Russe and revivals were barely noted in the press. But Nijinska herself never mentioned her appearance in the part that her brother had originally conceived for her. In a 1923 season roundup for Theatre Arts magazine, the American expatriate uh, critic Florence Gilliam commented on the anger this, quote, supremely intelligent artist brought to the role of the chosen maiden, the, quote, terrible macabre intensity and, quote, spas spasmodic hysterical terror, end quote, she conveyed as, a fate, as the victim of an inevitable fate. Whose choreography was she dancing? Was it Nijinsky's, filtered through the sister on whose body he had initially molded the role? Was it Massine's, filtered in, through Nijinska's own sensibility as a choreographer, or some combination thereof? And why Nijinska's silence? Did she feel she'd betrayed her brother by dancing the version that had supplanted his original? Or did she feel that she had usurped his identity as a choreographer? Um, in 1922, she danced not only The Chosen Maiden, but also her brother's role in Afternoon of a Fawn, the very role he had sketched on her more than a decade before in the family's St. Petersburg sitting room. Now, with her brother incurably ill, she was revealing in a very public way uh, her role in the genesis of his most important productions. Was she doing this at Diaghilev's behest? or her own, now that she, she, now that she rather than he, enjoyed Diaghilev's artistic con confidence? Of course, she never said. Um, as Richard Taruskin has pointed out, human sacrifice did not figure among the rituals of the pagan Slavs. In ballet, however, 19th century heroines died with regularity, abandoning terrestrial existence to enter, as Andre Levinson put it, the enchanted country of the ideal. The chosen maiden never enters this enchanted country. Unlike uh, Giselle, and this is Pavlova in the mad scene, or Nikia in La Bayadere, the chosen maiden never dons a tutu or slips on point shoes to experience the redeeming afterlife of the ballet blanc, the solace of a sisterhood, or the bathos of sentimental heartbreak. Caught in a vice, she cannot escape. She is only her pain. This pain, built into the um, original scenario, was gendered and also heroic. She may be condemned to die, but she does not acquiesce in her fate. Unlike the 19th century ballerina, the chosen maiden articulates her pain and registers a protest. As Levinson wrote of Maria Pilz in her Dance of Death, quote, a sudden spasm shook her body. At the fierce onward thrust of the rhythm, she trembled in ecstatic irregular jerks. This primitive hysteria completely caught and overwhelmed the spectator. These silent screams have become part of the ballet's memory. They suggest why so many women identified with the modern movement in dance have been drawn to the right, and why the sacrificial theme has survived in one form or another in so many productions. Pain haunts Mary Vigman's Rite of Spring and Martha Graham's and Melissa Fenley's State of Darkness. But more than any other production, it's Pina Bausch's uh, right, conceived in the early days of second wave feminism, that generalizes the pain. It's shared by the work's entire female community and spotlighted from the first. Women dominate Bausch's right. The lyrical sections, beginning with the introduction, belong to them. Young women, vulnerable, 
tender, a ballet sisterhood, although they're dressed in slips and barefoot. In the strongly rhythmic sections, they abandon their ballet selves, no longer silent. They express their pain, one might say in a paroxysm of self-flagellation, repeated, repeatedly striking their pelvis and womb, gestures reiterated by the chosen in her final solo, as waves of men invade the stage in a succession of attempted rapes. In Bausch's work, the rival tribes of Stravinsky's scenario are men and women. The first generation of choreographers of the Rite of Spring were Russians, and they carried the ballet's Scythian vision to different corners of the operatic world. Boris Romanov to the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires, Leonid Massine to La Scala and the Metropolitan, Lazar Galpern to the uh, Cologne Opera House. From the start then, the Russianness of the right was linked to alterity, to the primitive other nestling in the heart of Russia's divided soul. Over the decades, this, this cultural specificity was lost, and Scythians gave way to Aztecs, Native Americans, Australian Aborigines, Japanese samurai, and a host of cultural others who identified barbarism and the primitive in more generic ways, and were set in communities, rural as well as urban, torn by violence, AIDS, ethnic cleansing, ritualized gang rape, human destruction of all kind, and even nuclear holocaust. Um, again, the story that emerges from Stravinsky, the global dancer, is instructive. Just as the movement idiom employed by choreographers has grown increasingly diverse, encompassing not only modern and ballet, but also physical theater elements and world dance forms like buto, salsa, and traditional African dance, reflecting the increasing globalization of dance, so too, the right has become a work that comments on the contemporary world. Its physical settings and its people, free of the protective cover of the past and the embellishments of exoticism, belong to the here and now, while the treatment of barbarism turns, turns frequently on the multiple forms of violence, urban, sexual, political, cultural, ethnic, that permeate today's world. In Martine Epoch's 1987 version for Art Sen in Montreal, a pair of rebels lead an uprising against the dictator of a broken society. In Horst Müller's um, Nuremberg version, the, the action takes place in a bunker-like space under a cloud of impending annihilation. Saburo Teshigawara's version uses images of Nijinsky to reflect on the brutality of urban industrial society, while Royston Muldoon's version, adapted for multiple youth groups, culminated in a staging in Berlin for 250 children in ways that Stravinsky and his collaborators could never have imagined. <laughs> Their dance offspring have continued to reinvent what it means to be contemporary, redefine what is understood by evil, and renew their engagement with a changing world order. The right encourages choreographers to seize that moral and cultural ground. Uh, sexuality, as a germinative force, was, cent was central to the earliest manifestations of the Rite of Spring. The chosen maiden is sacrificed in a bargain with the gods for abundance to make the earth yield its fruits and ensure the well-being of the human tribe for another year. Here was a manifestation of Eros as understood by Freud in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which was originally published in 1920. A life drive that embraced survival, community, propagation, and quote, the enormous constructive activity, that's Freud's phrase, of the vital instincts. One cell, he wrote, helps to preserve the life of the others, and the cell community can go on living even if single cells have to perish a biological model that sums up the relationship of the chosen to the right's original community and also echoes Jacques Levier's description of the work as a, quote, biological ballet. The life drive is closely connected with the sexual instincts, what Freud calls the libido, and this in turn, quote, coincides with the, this is Freud again, with the eros of poets and philosophers, which holds together all things living, end quote. <laughs> 
This cosmic model emphasizes the social and creative functions of sexuality. It's not about the individual sexual act or individual sexual pleasure. Individual agency doesn't enter into Freud's scheme at all. With Maurice Béjart's production, however, first produced at the Théâtre de la Monnaie in 1959, the sexual act came to the fore. Um, Béjart's Rite of Spring was part of a post-World War II revisionist trend in ballet that witnessed the recreation of several Diaghilev-era works with new stories as well as new steps. An early example was Jerome Robbins' Afternoon of a Fawn from 1953, reconceived as an encounter between two dancers in a studio rather than a fawn and a half dozen nymphs in an attic grove. Then in 1959, Béjart undressed the Rite of Spring, eliminating sets and ethnographically suggestive costumes and equating the primitive with sex. According to the dance historian Shelley Burke, the project was the brainchild of Maurice Wiesmann, the Monet's director, who, quote, wanted to present ballet as an art form capable of appearing to young, appealing to young people, as well as attracting an international audience. I love the coupling of young people and international <laughs> audience. Uh, he chose the right because it had once caused a revolution. He didn't say riot, he said revolution. Béjart, for his part, was an outsider in a francophone uh, dance world dominated by the Paris Opera. He told Berg, I planned the meeting of a man and a woman. Then the act of love is a ritual, something religious, even something very violent, end quote. Um, the ballet ended with more than 40 dancers making love, quote, to show the fundamental force that incites the race to reproduce says Béjart. Uh, the dancers wore leotards and tights, the women's flesh-colored, the men's in earth colors, that not only revealed the body, but also made it a contemporary body, like the dancers in works by Balanchine, Merce Cunningham, and Robbins. Béjart's right entered the repertory on the very eve of the 1960s. It, it thus anticipated both the sexual revolution and the youth revolution, and seemed to usher in the age of Aquarius. Moreover, it was not the only rite of that era to underscore hedonism and sexuality. Kenneth Macmillan's version, which premiered in 1962, two years after London saw the Béjart work, obviously a little bit of influence there, again dressed the dancers in leotards, although the Australian designer, uh, Sidney Nolan, in keeping with the Antipodian theme, he described it as the landscape of regions as yet untouched by civilization, um, used, he used face painting and wigs to achieve an appearance of primitivism. When the ballet was revived in 2008, this is by the Royal Ballet, the critic Louise Levine referred to the cast as line-dancing zombies <laughs> and to the choreography, and again I quote her, as an ethnic pick-and-mix of flexed feet, jutting buttocks, splayed fingers, and two-footed jumps, end quote. Béjart's right, too, looks kind of old hat. The animal imagery that once promised liberation now seems heavy, I have to say again, on testosterone, while the squats, lunges, contractions, and other mid-century modern dance movements look today like cliches. Today, decades after the sexual revolution, one doesn't have to go primitive to choreograph sex. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, to a far greater degree than virtually any other uh, dance work, the Rite of Spring is cognizant of its history. To be sure, there have been choreographers who've looked critically at that history, deconstructing it perhaps, interrupting the smooth, smooth operation of memory. Yvonne Rayner, and we're going to be hearing more about her later, and Jérôme Bell are two um, uh, who come to mind, but of course there are others. But for most of the choreographers who have grappled with the score, the Rite of Spring stands for the art form's great tradition, a touchstone of 20th century culture, a certifiably great work, a work of substance made familiar by the passage of a century and made ever more accessible by technology. The Rite is a way for choreographers to interject themselves into the canon. To be sure, the rite is a canonical work that exists in multiple lost forms and a few dozen living ones. 
It thus belongs to what might be called a canon of memory, full of echoes, traces, movements, and half-remembered ideas that survive through the palimpsests of later productions. This is the ballet's Scythian inheritance, its challenge to cultura, its revolutionary potential through corporeal expression, and the possibility it offers to experience anew the transgressiveness of modernism through the choreographic act. Through continuing waves of reinvention, the right has demonstrated not only its staying power, but also a way of approaching canonicity in an art where virtually nothing survives in performance. As Stephanie uh, Jordan suggests, new choreographers seem to, quote, approach their task less by reflecting upon a notional original and more upon a whole history or production. The music of the Rite of Spring may vary from performance to performance, but it remains bound by its text. The addition of a dance element to the work alters the equation dramatically. With no standard choreographic text, the work ventures into realms the score alone cannot take it. It undergoes a process of reinvention that updates and transforms the work even when the music remains untouched. The, a, a reason, perhaps the reason, the right remains so vital a musical text is because it keeps remaking itself as a dance. This is not something the musicologists like to hear. Uh, it has a vibrant life outside the concert hall and remains a living cultural artifact, one that responds to outside stimuli and accesses multiple cultural memories and shares them with diverse audiences. Because of the relative stability of the score, the Rite of Spring holds out the tantalizing possibility of re-experiencing re the ballet's original transgressive moment, of linking an art of the moment to a canon that transcends the individual work to encompass its forgotten and half-remembered predecessors as well as its living contemporaries. The Rite of Spring, even at 100, remains a work in progress. Thank you. <laughs>
um, investigation of the material. There are scores where there are some kinds of notations indicating some some kind of movements that were performed at particular moments in the score. There are, um, of course, many, many drawings, and I think we're going to have a paper about Valentine Hugo's... Uh, we are. We are, okay, <laughs> yes. Uh, drawings, um, she did numerous drawings in performance, which very often indicate things like... Um, groupings or particular types of movements, suggest particular types of movements, so there's some of that. There were also um, other kinds of verbal cues. This was uh, enormously covered. The amount of press, reviews, commentary upon was totally, puts the right of spring in a totally different category even in 1913. Millicent, um, also did a great deal of research, especially on uh, Rorick, Nicholas Rorick, who was the designer. She was very interested in his, his interest in esoteric um, religion and his interest in pre-Slavic archaeology and um, the use, uh, and she speculates um, that Nijinsky took from some of his designs certain kinds of ritualistic um, forms which he incorporated into the choreography. Um, but I would say that this is her choreography, which is deeply informed by research, but ultimately it's impossible to bring anything back. That there's no score. She, was, she spoke to Marie Rambert, who had been Nijinsky's assistant. It was very much toward the end of Rambert's life. Rambert said, yes, the jump looks like this, or there was certain kinds of things where we did something like this. Um, but Rambert didn't um, stand up and say, and then group one did X, group two did something else. Um, in other words, to do the kind of thing that you have to know in order to, as it were, restage um, a work. So that, for instance, if um, American Ballet Theatre decides to do uh, Frederick Ashton's uh, Figue Malgarde, they go to the Ashton Trust, someone comes and sets the ballet probably, and then various people are sent to coach it. So that even though the, the production will look different from it will feel different. The interpretations will be slightly different. It still very closely adheres to what you're likely to see at the Royal at Covent Garden. This is not the case necessarily here. But as I would say, Millet, this was um, there's a great deal more interpretation um, than you know than this would be. She once said very in 1987 at a talk she gave shortly after the first uh, the first performance which she said she had something for every bar of music now if you have 35 dancers on the stage to have something for every bar of move mu um, music means that there's a whole lot that you don't have for that bar of music so that's where I say a great deal had to be um, interpreted and filled in but dancers who worked, who've worked with her have said that they really had a sense of her complete commitment to the material and the way she attempted to work with them to generate ideas, um, to generate a feeling about it so that they would be able to approach it uh, with what might be termed what she felt was the uh, appropriate kind of commitment and indeed sense of the importance of the music, uh, of the dance as forms of ritual, uh, as weighted movement, etc. Other questions? One of the things I'm always so fascinated with is the the complex mixture of intense gender battle, but also the hermaphroditic androgyny of a lot of the productions. And in my ignorance, I just wondered, has there been an all-male production ever? And there would be a, a sort of wonderful reversal in having the chosen one. I'm thinking Matthew Bourne has an opportunity. There have there the chosen one. It, now, first of all, not everyone uses chosen ones, 
Um, but there have been some with chosen ones who were male. Um, but I don't think there has been, I don't, I can't say, my, we'll have to ask Stephanie Jordan this afternoon, uh, whether there have been all male productions. I suspect there must have been along the way. But one of the things that as one listens to the music, it's very clear that the music for this person we call the Chosen Maiden, um, originally, this music is different. And therefore, in productions which in fact don't even say they have a chosen maiden, there is something of one person or a few people standing out, standing apart, because the music, in a sense, drives certain things. The music clearly drives um, the rhythmicity. I mean, you can't get away from that if you're using the score. There are certain things you can't get away from because of the nature of the, of the music. He was in many ways an amateur ethnographer. Yeah. He was very interested in a whole lot of things, and one of the things in his memoirs that he does talk about, although it's never really been uh, subjected, even in Russia, I don't think, to any kind of systematic um, investigation, where did he actually go? What did he do during these early formative years, right around 1900? He says about how he went out to get a feeling of these different places. He traveled up the Volga. He saw all of these different things. It's very, and then he went to Spain and saw real Spanish dancing, and then the Tarantellas and things. It's very clear in his early days that class, it was classical dance that seemed totally dead to him. And what seemed to still have kind of breath and life, some kind of living vitality still there, was non, what were non-classical forms of movement. And I think some of his um, interest in these earlier, um, in, the, in the journeys that he was taking and in seeing various kinds of work, I think this was really very interesting to him. And that, but what he was actually reading, no one knows. Um, and there seems to be, uh, at, at, at a certain point, Fokin seemed to be very arrogant. He was, it's very interesting. I've never really read anything terribly convincing about what happened to Fokin after he broke with the Ballet Russe and what happened to him in Russia. He's continued to work in Russia. He was actually appointed an assistant. Um, he was one of the ballet masters working at the Imperial Theatres. But there were various kinds of scandals that you sort of pick up. Um, he uh, left Russia right at the time of the revolution because he had a job. He had a contract in, um, in Sweden where he had worked several times before the war. But uh, he chose not to return. People say it's because he insisted his wife had to be made a ballerina. She was only a première danseuse, and she shouldn't have been dancing ballerina roles. Uh, but it is true that he was someone who remained a persona fairly grata within the Soviet period. He was not subject, uh, subjected to complete um, erasure. So that Chopiniana, revived by... Vaganova in the 1930s remains in the, re in the Soviet repertoire. His um, memoirs, are uh, along with a collection of like his letters to Beaumont, uh, relating to Beaumont's book, um, are all translated into Russian in this, um, in a rather hefty volume um, of Materiali, and that was published around 1961 or 62, around the same time that the English version of his memoirs came out, and was of course, much better. Um, it was a scholarly volume, unlike the um, other one. But even there, no one has really looked at, taken seriously this 
almost kind of archaeological, um, ethnological thing. Yes. Uh, it kind of just uh, then add to um, what you said, Prince's uh, question, is that um, during the 19th century in Russia, they started mapping the huge territories of the empire, which went right across the land of mm -hmm. Rostov. And they had German cartographers and everything. Mm -hmm. And they, they brought information back to St. Petersburg, which was the capital. And um, I think up until about 1860, there was a centre, I think, I think it was Kazan, that they had professors and orientologists and all this business. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at the different peoples and the customs mm -hmm. and everything. I think it, 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 there is a thing called Slav Balism or something. The mid-19th century started in Russia. <coughs> and then in about 1860, that centre in, I think it was Kazan, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. it was moved to St. Petersburg with all mm -hmm. the stuff. And so that was the centre for all this stuff about these different peoples, these tribes, and the way mm -hmm. right across this swathe of... Of, of right. That was very particular to Russia, mm -hmm. and um, it almost the stuff is in different languages. It's there. It's it's. I, I assume it's still there in the university. But mm -hmm. they research drawers on it very richly. Yeah, yeah, they could probably. Yeah. I, I don't know. They they. I suppose we could go in there and look at it. I think it, there's and there's also instances of um, in the early the first decade of the uh, the twentieth century, the imperial um, there were there were imperial forays um, into the different parts of the empire, taking photographs of all kinds of things, and they that's another that's wonderful repository of images of different parts of the empire, and that again was officially sanctioned and everything. Um, the problem always is, is that there's such a difference between educated people like these Orientalists who are, um, and someone like Fokin who's basically self-taught. It's one of the, you know, he was educated, he was from a low-level merchant family, and he was educated at the Imperial Ballet School. <laughs> didn't go to university. He didn't go to gymnasium. The diff he didn't have the multi, he, he wasn't multilingual. Um, in other words, the difference between someone like Fokin and Nijinsky and Nijinsky, I would add, and the kind of education that came, um, that someone like even boxed, um, that artist Rorick certainly enjoyed, meant that they were precluded from a certain kind of intelligentsia, in, in intellectual interaction. But I do think it's worth investigating. There, Fokin must have left some traces. There must be some traces in, in his imperial theater um, uh, dossiers, um, recording permission to go to X or to Y. There is a chap, I think it's 1880s, 1890s, or it's, um, who was a, a sort of leader in this, who was in charge of um, education in, in the St. Petersburg area. So, I mean, you never know, maybe it did filter down from the university level. Mm -hmm. Just don't know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things one doesn't know. <laughs> Can I, can I also just sure. exploit my position mercilessly to uh, ask a question? <laughs> I, was, I was hugely interested, I thought it was such a lovely way to end the paper of describing the Rite of Spring at 100 as a work in progress, which I think mm. is so apt in terms of some of the ways we're thinking about it. Yes. From a non-Darks historian point of view, I suppose one of the things that always strikes me is that a choreographer taking on the right mm -hmm. seems in itself a rite of passage. You know, that seems to me like the young actor, male actor taking on Hamlet or the old one right. taking on Leah. My question is, does the right have that kind of quality about it amongst choreographers? Does it become something that is seen as, yeah, I have come of age if I'm going to tackle the right? Or is it seen as something that's perhaps slightly eccentric to do it? How does it fit into that? Well, I, I I think there are a number who think now that this is mm. the, this is my the Hamlet for yeah. uh, an, a, a young actor, um, 
In fact, someone sent me a link to something on the Sadler's Wells web website with a young Irish choreographer who said exactly that. Really? <laughs> that this is... I didn't know that. Yes. Um, he and very much expressed himself in those terms. However, on the other hand, one does have choreographers like um, Yvonne Rayner who um, certainly takes a much more critical um, uh, approach to history, although... She cannot have been unaware that this was a way of interjecting herself into the celebrations of 2013, <laughs> nor Marie Chouinard, uh, whose, uh, whose one has also interjected itself. So I, I do think um, that even people who perhaps take this critical approach you know, are, are quite aware that they are stepping into the, you know, into the are engaging in some way with this kind of great tradition. Sure. Um, although, as I say, there are some, like Yvonne Rayner, I have not actually seen Bell's um, write, so I can't judge, but from what I've you know, judged directly, there seems to be a, a more critical mm -hmm. approach to it. But I think for many, absolutely, this is the big thing. I mean, to watch Melissa Fenley's State of Darkness, which is a... a a solo version, and she gets to the end. I mean, not only is it a workout, you say, my God, this is a triumphant thing. She's been at it for 39 and a half minutes, you know. <laughs> but, you know, there, there she is, going up against the big tradition, and she's half nude. <laughs> okay, well, I think we'll take a... Oh. Yeah. Uh, speak with us. So I'm sure you'll join me in thanking. Thank you.